Good morning, everyone. Uh, there is an outline of the sermon today in the bulletin if you would like to uh, follow along at all or take any notes. Let me pray for us before we begin our time looking at this passage from John together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that it guides us and shapes us to be ever more your people in the image of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, the title for the sermon this morning is Knowing God Means Knowing Jesus. This is a phrase that might seem obvious to us, but it was far from obvious uh, to Jesus' hearers, those who he is speaking with in today's passage. They did not accept the testimony about Jesus. They did not accept that it was true, that it was real. And what is it that makes something true? At what point is someone going to believe the testimony about it? For example, if you were to see a a picture of a very strange animal from a far-off land, at what point would you believe that it was true? This actually happened back in the 18th century. In 1799, English zoologists were sent specimens of Australian animals. You might have heard this story. They were sent a specimen of a platypus. And at first, some of them believed that it was a hoax, that it could not possibly be true. This strange animal with a bill of a duck with webbed feet that was a bit like a beaver, that was a bit like a mole. In fact, one zoologist, George Shaw, he wrote in 1799, it naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means. But on closer investigation, they had to admit that, yes, this was a new animal. They had the animal right there in front of them. How could they deny it? Or at least they couldn't deny it for very long, surely. Well, if that's the evidence for a strange new animal from a far-off land, what evidence could be enough? What testimony could be enough when it comes to the Son of God? That's something that you'd want to be pretty sure about, wouldn't you? Well, in today's passage, Jesus, he knows who he is primarily because of the testimony of his father. He knows who he is because his father tells him so. That is good enough for him. You'd think it would be good enough for his hearers as well, good enough for us. But by the grace of God, there's even more testimony that we see in this passage here. And so... The first part of this passage shows us what this testimony is. And then secondly, what this testimony reveals, who, they, who this testimony reveals Jesus to be. So let's first look at what is this testimony. It's like there's a whole lineup of witnesses in a courtroom for Jesus to draw on. And he's not even counting himself as one of those witnesses. He says in verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, he's not saying that he can't be trusted. He's saying here that he as the son can do nothing without the father, just as he'd been saying in the previous verses that we looked at last week. Even when he is bearing witness, he can do nothing without the father. That is the closeness of the connection between them. And so he looks to other witnesses instead. First of all, he points out to them that John the Baptist testified to the truth. 
he was the one sent to prepare the way for the Lord, the last of the prophets under the old covenant. John didn't prepare the way to convince Jesus who he was, though. He prepared the way to convince those who were waiting for the Messiah, the Messiah that had been promised throughout God's story in the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't need more evidence than what comes directly from his Father, but his hearers do, and so they have John. And it says in verse 35 that John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. It's true that lots of Jewish people at the time and even many leaders, they enjoyed what John was saying. His, his ministry, it, can, it created and generated lots of excitement about the coming of the Messiah. But for many people only for a time they wouldn't then come to recognize the one that John had announced. They were so ready to accept this human testimony. But then when the one who is the Son of God himself comes, they were so ready to reject it instead. It would be like if you had seen evidence of a new land, a new species of animal that existed nowhere else on earth. But once you had agreed that this new land must exist that you lost all interest in it, that no one was ever sent to explore it, to find out who might be living there, to see what else might be there as well. How could they take what John said and then not look to Jesus? Well, John was testifying to the truth. And more than that, secondly, Jesus' works, they testify that his Father has sent him. Jesus says that this testimony is even weightier than that of John because this comes directly from the Father, the works that he has been given to finish, that he is still doing right there in front of them. And anyone who has followed John's gospel so far will know that these works, they aren't some mere demonstration that Jesus was a special person or even perhaps a prophet. What he is doing is showing them who God is, what God values, and what God plans for him as well. He's turned water into wine to show God's abundance. He's healed people outwardly to show God's compassion and to desire to heal them inwardly where it really matters. Later on, he's going to go on to feed the hungry, showing the power over the natural world as well, help the blind see, and bring the dead to life. Of course, all leading up his greatest work, his own death for our sake and resurrection to new life. These are the works that testify that the Father has sent the Son. And it's not just the works that testify. Thirdly, the Father himself testifies concerning Jesus. There in verse 37, that's what Jesus says. Yet the people he's talking to have never heard his voice or seen his form. And his words don't dwell in them, for they don't believe the one that he has sent. What greater character witness could there be for Jesus than his own Father, God, the Creator, declaring who he is? If the Father testifies concerning the Son, 
If the father didn't testify concerning the son, well then, either the father's not the father or the son is not the son. Their relationship is that close. So these are the witnesses that Jesus looks looks to and that he reminds his hearers about as well. So what do they reveal about Jesus? Who do they reveal Jesus to be? Often when you hear someone talk about a person that you don't know, you start to think, gee, I wish I had got to know that person. This is something that can happen in courtrooms, but most often in my experience, it's something that I've seen happen at funerals, even funerals of people that I haven't known at all previously. As they are spoken about by their friends and family, you get to know them. And from the testimony, there's always a point where you wish that you had got to know them a little bit more as well. Well, these people testifying to Jesus, they help us get to know him. First of all, he is the Messiah promised in the scriptures. The scriptures that they had and that Jesus says they study diligently because in them they think they will have eternal life. They testify about Jesus. But in verse 40 he says, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. All the scriptures, everything that they had, the law, the prophets, they should have known. Just take the reading we had from Deuteronomy chapter 18 as an example. Through Moses, God says there to the people that I will put my words in this prophet's mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. And Moses even anticipates the objection that the people might have. How will they know that this prophet is from God? He has an answer in verse 22 of our chapter there in Deuteronomy. Moses says to them, if a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. But it was coming true. Not just that passage, but all of the flow of the Old Testament was coming true in Jesus himself. It should have been enough for them. So why wasn't it? It's as if they had made themselves to be the judges in God's courtroom and declared that their testimony in front of them was inadmissible. Not because it couldn't be trusted, but because they didn't like it. They did want life. They wanted eternal life. And they studied the scriptures thinking that it would bring it for them, but Jesus insists on them that there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if you fail to see the one that they're pointing to. Jesus says they're the scriptures that testify about him. I think that those people that Jesus was talking to who are so ready to dismiss the testimony he is showing them They did so because they liked their way better. They could have all the human praise and all the human glory that they wanted because of their great knowledge. But Jesus shows them what really matters in the next section. The Son is glorified by the Father and not by man. That's what really matters. 
Jesus says to them in verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Jesus isn't doing what he's doing to win praise from people. There's all sorts of other things he could have done if that was his actual goal. If he stopped to become the the kind of Messiah that they wanted, of course they would have been attracted to him and praised him. But that was not his commitment to his father. He had come in his father's name to do his will. But accepting praise from people is easier, isn't it? That's why his hearers were so attracted to that. It's more immediate. It's even possible that a person could find praise for their sin, something that you're never going to get from God, are you? But according to Jesus, this was one of the central problems that his hearers had. They were so ready to accept glory from each other and not accept the one that God was glorifying instead. And so... At this point, they could have just decided to ignore Jesus and to say that, well, they're vindicated by the Bible, by the law of Moses, on which their whole worldview was built. But Jesus does not let them off that easily. He shows them, thirdly, that even the law of Moses accuses them of what they are doing. He says there in verse 45, But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hope is set. You see, they thought that they were sticking so close to the law, but new life was never to be found in the law, but in the one the law was pointing to, who was standing there, right in front of them. He tells them if they really believed Moses, they would believe him, because the law of Moses was writing about him. In fact, Moses himself, he would have been outraged by the willfulness of their blindness when face to face with God's Son. But in verse 47, Jesus says, Since you do not believe what he has wrote, what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Their situation actually seems kind of hopeless, doesn't it? How could they get out of this mess that they're in? Well, it's only with God's help, isn't it? And the same thing is true for us today. How quickly can we fall into thinking that what matters is being good while forgetting that all we really can do is rely on the one person in history who actually was good? So, this passage, it makes claims about Jesus, that he is God's son, that there is testimony to that. And this is absolute truth that Jesus is one with the Father. But saying absolute truth, claiming absolute truth in this day and age, we can be wary of that because there are so many different versions out there, so many different worldviews. As we become more and more aware of the world around us as we should be, we are aware of all the different views that people have. How then can we claim that this one is true. Well, we're not the one claiming it. Jesus himself is. All other worldviews replace him either with another God or replace God with 
human beings or even the nature that he himself created. But if what Jesus is saying is true, if the testimony about him is true, then it's something that we can rely on, not because of anything we have done, but because of who he is. Secondly, this passage is an encouragement for us to look not to human glory, but to glory from God, just like he did, seeking to please God rather than please each other. Wanting to please one another, this is a danger for all of us, a danger on both sides of the lectern here in church this morning as well. I can be very tempted to say what I think you all want to hear to to gain praise from you. And I'm sure you can be very uh, eager sometimes to look to hear what you want to hear. We can end up looking for human praise in what we say. We can end up looking for people to glorify us when we tell them what they want to hear. But instead, let us look to what God wants us to hear and look only to glory and praise from him, just as his son does. Because Jesus, he really knows who he is because the father tells him. And that's a wonderful truth. He's not at all uncertain about who he is, what his identity is. And that's such a comfort, I think, especially in this day and age when so many people are unsure of their identity, about who they really are deep, deep down. Jesus knew who he, he knows who he is. And like Jesus, because of him, we are God's children as well. And so we can know who we are deep down because God tells us. And so, knowing God means knowing Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know God. And you can be confident in that knowledge as well because of who God is, because of what he has done. And most of all, because of how he glorifies and shows us himself through his son. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you testify to your Son who he is and that through that we can know too that he is our Lord, our Saviour and that we are your children through him. Please help us to know deep down that we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.